All right, everybody, welcome back to Startup Legal Basics with my attorney, Becky DeGraw from Wilson Sonsini. Welcome back to the program, Becky. Hi, how are you? Good to be I here. I am great. It's great to have you back. You and I do this every year or two. We look at all the topics uh, that founders face, capital allocators face, and we just try to have a really thoughtful discussion about them. All of these live at thisweekinstartups.com slash basics, thisweekinstartups.com slash basics. Uh, or you can just search Startup Legal Basics Playlist on YouTube. You'll find it immediately. Over the past few weeks, you've heard us cover a lot of topics that are important right now in the year 2023, going into 2024, down rounds, repricing options, um, and just generally the, the trends of 2023. One thing that's new in our industry, Becky, is the concept of founders being able to sell in secondary. Let's dive into this because when I started in the industry, VCs had the position 20 years ago that secondaries were evil and that you wanted a hungry founder. You wanted like a really hungry wolf pack that was going for the IPO and they had nothing but suffering and pain until that point in time, but something changed along the way. So maybe you can give us an overview of what changed and you know how often these are occurring and, and some of the best practices. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So I think you're absolutely right. You know, you go back 20 years and these were rare, rare, rare. You know, if we go back five years, um, maybe I'll call, you know, that period kind of the, the new normal. And, mm. you know, during that time, secondaries were largely reserved for later stage companies and were usually done at a discount, you know, anywhere from maybe 10 to 25% of whatever the last preferred stock round was. But beginning in the second half of 2020, there was as we all experienced this mm. bit of a funding frenzy that really kicked off and gained momentum through early 2022. And during that time, valuation soared, amounts raised soared. Firms became more and more company and founder friendly, including on secondaries. We started seeing secondaries as early as Series A and, and you know, 50 to 75% of deals. Um, I mean, it just really became almost the norm to have a secondary included. And when they were included, it was almost always at the same price as the preferred stock round. Maybe you get a little bit mm. of a discount. Um, and then, you know, when last year, when things started cooling down, the secondary market did start to, you know, get back to normal, you know, where secondaries certainly aren't happening at the Series A stage right now. And they, they really are, you know, reserved for the later stage. And Part of the reason we're not seeing so many is because later stage financing market has slowed down. Um, but I think on a percentage basis, it's still probably back to that normal time period of, you know, when we are seeing an, an up round, not, not in connection with a down round at a later stage. But if we are seeing an up round at a later stage, probably about half of them are, still have secondaries associated with it. Yeah, and these are done because companies were staying private longer. So the stay private longer in Uber, Airbnb, uh, and Facebook, most famously, I think, uh, back in the day, I mean, Facebook kind of got forced to go public at a certain point, they just had so many investors, it was causing some uh, agita with the SEC, I believe, where there's a certain number of people you can have in a private company. Um, but Yuri Milner, very famously did a blended deal uh, in Facebook, I believe, where he bought some secondary at a bit of a discount, and then he paid a very high price for the uh, primary shares, the preferred shares in Facebook. And this gave him an ability to outbid other people. So on the buy side, 
you can uh, and this i think masayoshi san did the same thing he paid a certain amount for preferred shares in uber and then he paid some of us with uh existing shares and some common shares a slightly different price and then i guess he netted out hey when this thing goes public it all becomes one class of share anyway so i'll just blend the price it lets the startup have a higher valuation in the press um and it lets me buy some at a discount that don't have the same rights so what's the tension between founders and how much they sh sell and how much they're allowed to sell typically let's take out the crazy highs and the crazy lows we've been through recently and just talk about sort of maybe the steady state going forward how much should a founder in the eyes of most investors and boards be allowed to sell percentage wise number wise and, and what's the the best stand the the gold standard now I yeah i'd say usually five percent or less mm. of, of their total holdings um, is, is where we normally look now as as we start looking at later stage companies and the value gets higher and higher that number the percent the total percentage that we want a founder to sell gets lower mm. Because some part of it too, right, is about the motivation, the compensation. You don't necessarily want them to sell $20 million worth of stock. And are they really going to be motivated to stay yeah. with the company and make the company grow to the next biggest thing? Um, so sometimes it is founder specific in that regards. Um, you know, you've got a founder who is always going to, you know, have, you know, uh, work 110%. So maybe, you know, a bigger secondary would be okay. But I would say a good rule of thumb 5% or less that decreases as the company gets mm. more mature. And is there a dollar amount you see most frequently? And does it relate to, you know, any sort of benchmarks in the real world? Not really. I think it varies a lot. You know, a lot of times you'll see a million dollars as kind of the minimum, you know, mm. particularly if you're dealing with founders. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of two different categories. There's founder liquidity and then employee liquidity mm. for really late stage companies. And, you know, if you're doing like an employee liquidity where you're going to offer it to all of your employees that meet certain eligibility requirements on a per person basis, it's probably going to be a whole lot less than that. But if mm. you're looking at founder liquidity, wouldn't be surprised to see it around a million or higher. Yeah. And uh, the upper bound for me tends to be, you know, three, four or five million. You're starting to get to the point of, well, is this going to be a distraction? And I think, you know, the conversations I hear in the back channel is, hey, enough to buy a house, <laughs> but maybe not two. enough to <laughs> maybe uh, if you're getting a little frisky, you know, buy a jet suite card, <laughs> buy yourself 25 hours of private jet service on a tiny jet, if you're into such things, but maybe not enough to buy the entire $30 million jet. And when we do see I don't point out any specific companies, but there was a transaction that occurred where somebody sold 200 million for a company that is now worth less than 200 million is my understanding. And I know some friends who were invested in that and they just said, our bad. We just got so high on this company. We were so high on this opportunity <laughs> that people came in and just bought literally 200 million from the founder, uh, which is the equivalent of what would have been raised in, you know, an IPO in the past, right? Like your yeah. IPO and you raise 200 million in the IPO here, that money's not going into the company. It's not going to make the enterprise stronger. And that's really what you have to look at, I think, is how much money is available for the company itself to go in their coffers to be deployed to increase the value of the company. That $200 million, man, that just went right to a personal bank account. And that's where you have to get concerned as an employee, as a board is, you know, do we should we have this inside the company? Uh, wouldn't that be a better use for these proceeds? Is yeah, there a percentage, absolutely. You, you know, know I mean, of like... That, that, that's a big consideration, you know, when yeah. we're, we're looking at these. And, and anytime we're looking at 
liquidity transactions. And there's a few different ways that we can structure those. Mm. But there's a number of different considerations that come into play. And you're looking at it from the buyer's perspective, you're looking at it from the seller's perspective, and you're looking at it from the company perspective. And layered on top of that is tax considerations, Mm. impact on the company's 409A valuation, whether that transaction could jeopardize, you know, QSBS, qualified small business stock status for either stock that's been issued in the last 12 months or stock that will be issued in the 12 months going forward. You know, whether there's tender offer rules you have to think about. There's there's a number of considerations and they all have pros and cons to different players. Mm. So trying to find the right fit that is magic for all three players and doesn't cause, you know, adverse tax consequences is always the goal, but they're not always necessarily able to achieve it perfectly for all three parties. So if the company's raising 100 million, it's at a billion dollar valuation, I'm just picking even numbers here, and 20 million of that is going to go towards secondary 80 million is going to be primary goes into the company. So 20% of the round goes to secondary or 2% of the total value of the company, 80% of the round or, you know, uh, 8% of the total companies uh, shares uh, get issued, new shares get issued uh, and a purchase with that 80 million. Uh, there's a concept that comes up, uh, pari passu. Maybe we could explain this uh, and how it relates to early investors and early employees and the founders. Yeah, absolutely. So if we, if the buyer or investor in that situation buys directly from the employees, they're going to buy common stock. And common stock doesn't have all the bells and whistles that the preferred stock does. It doesn't have a liquidation preference. So sometimes investors will say, I don't want to hold common stock because I want the downside protection that goes along with that liquidation preference. And I want the other bells and whistles that go along with holding a preferred stock. We will see that um, sentiment disappear the closer the company is to an exit transaction. Mm. Because the closer that they feel assurance that, okay, the company is going to exit, all of my preferred stock is going to convert to common anyway, and we're all going to get paid out the same thing no big deal for me to hold that common stock. Yeah. But the earlier it is, the farther away from that point, investors are more hesitant to to hold the common stock. And sometimes people will want to have fairness that we all share on equal footing. So I am the found the two founders get to sell 5% of their holdings, shouldn't the angels be able to sell 5% shouldn't the early investors. So how does that occur? There have been some bad feelings, where um the founders got to sell i won't mention any specific companies but very famous companies founders get to sell ipo happens ipo tanks uh the employees are holding their shares let's just say it was a ten dollar ipo founder sold at you know before the ipo at nine dollars a share or ten dollars a share because uh, somebody w- just saw that as a way of getting you know pre-ipo or you know the the friends and family round so they sell at 10 Mm, stock goes down to five six months later and the employees didn't get to participate in that so you know talk about those dynamics and and how those are avoided or is that just part of the game here in silicon valley (laughs) i think i think it's part of part of the game in silicon valley but um the board of the company does have to make the decision as to who's allowed to participate how much are they going to participate even if the company's not involved, and almost always the company is involved in some regard, 
But even if the company is not involved in the actual purchase itself, and there's a true third-party purchase going on, the company probably still has to waive its right of first refusal. Mm. So there are components where the company can weigh in. And usually, in, a, in the bigger purchases, the investor is going to go through the company anyways to kind of help structure the transaction. And in that case, right, the, the company's board is now have to exercise their fiduciary duties in determining what is in the best interest of the company and the stockholders. And that's where the heart of the discussion is going to go. And depending on who's participating, if it's directors or officers or insiders, you may, you may decide to go out and get a majority of disinterested stockholder vote to kind of help approve the transaction if there Got are it. interested parties involved. And we've talked about this on previous issues, <laughs> episodes. This concept of interested parties, like everybody's interested. <laughs> we're all showing up every day for work. We're, we're all on the board. We all have white shares. So it's, it's really like, how interested are we and, and how thoughtful of a process did we do? How many people signed off on this transaction? And the best practice seems to be just being honest with everybody about what's going on and everybody getting a chance to participate. That's what I always tell founders is, hey, you know, instead of going off on your own and trying to do a tender offer, you met somebody when you were on some trip around the world who wants to buy your shares, some Russian oligarch or somebody you met in Singapore wants to buy your shares and you create an LLC and you start doing off the cap table transactions. This kind of stuff does occur and it can get people in downstream trouble, yeah? It does. I, I, th I think it doesn't happen as often as, you know, like you only need one of them to happen and then it hits the news and everybody's like, oh my gosh, this crazy stuff yeah. is happening. But they are, I, I think those types of transactions are more rare. I think that boards generally are at least having the discussions and they, you know, not everybody may agree with where they come out as to what the right group of people are. But um, I think more often than not, discussions are happening. Uh, let's say you were a shareholder in a very promising unicorn company that you were an angel investor in, making up a complete hypothetical here. Uh, and you created an LLC for yourself, because the founders of the company said we're not allowing secondary transactions. You create an LLC, you say, eh, I'm going to pledge my shares in this company here. And then somebody else says, you know, what? I'd like to buy 50% of that LLC uh, from you. Is there anything the company can do to stop this kind of stuff when it occurs? Or is it a fair thing to occur in the world? Or is it a gray area? It all depends on the document. So some transfer restrictions are broad enough to where it picks up pledges as well. Mm -hmm. um, there's all sorts of different types of contracts where you can sell, you know, an interest, but not the shares themselves or Got the it. future payout, but not the shares themselves. So depending on how broad the transfer restrictions are and what type of transfer restrictions there are. Usually investor shares have less transfer restrictions than, you know, common stock Employee shares. So. shares, yeah. Exactly. So sometimes there's bylaw, there's transfer restrictions in the bylaws, which just purely say no transfers of any shares preferred or common without board approval, period. Do those hold up in Delaware court or the, have those ever been challenged to the best of your knowledge? As long as stockholders approve it. So, mm. right, like if, if, you, if you put that type of transfer restriction in place on day one, all the stockholders will be bound by it. Got um, it. But not a lot of people do that, and particularly mm. around preferred stock. Sometimes, yeah. you know, when, as the company started staying private longer and, you know, the, the really popular company, companies and there was, you know, the secondary markets that came out and there was a huge distraction of like, oh my gosh, all these people are selling and 
Yeah. Because this is just a huge distraction for the company. We want to put, you know, restrictions on both the preferred stock and the common stock. Hmm. If and you then do you have that, to get people have to sign off on it, though. Exactly. And it's not just getting a majority of the stockholders mm. to approve it at that point. That does approve the bylaws amendment, but it's only going to apply to folks that actually sign the consent. So if you put a new type of transfer restriction in place that is, hey, you can't transfer without board approval in the middle after you already mm. hold your shares, then yes, th that would not be applicable. Or they could just do it with new investors going forward. So, hey, you yep. want to invest, these are the rules. Um, and I think that's what happened in this hypothetical company was some of us who got in very early had a lot more freedom than people who came in later uh, in a completely hypothetical example. But venture firms have a long history of doing this. Uh, because I might be an L I might have an LP interest in a company that invested in Airbnb. Okay, Airbnb is 99% of the returns in this seed fund, let's call it a $20 million fund that you were lucky enough Becky to own be a 10% LP. So you own 2% of it, which means you own 2% of the 99.99% returns that are coming from that. And it's a, uh, you know, I don't know, let's make it a billion dollar return. So you've got whatever that is 20 million in carry coming to you 2% uh, of it, you could sell your interest in that for that venture firm uh, at a discount for 18 million or something and just clear your position that way. And, and some known large endowments type entities have done this in the past. Yep, M most likely, right? Again, yeah. always got to check the documents that you signed, yep. you know, to see re what restrictions are on them. But that is a very, very common fact pattern is early investors get into these companies, there weren't all those transfer restrictions in place, they didn't sign on later. And yeah, they have the ability to, to do have more freedom to sell and transfer shares or mm. interest in them or interest in SPVs yeah. or funds that they, they are, the, yeah. hold the shares. There might have even been banks that were in this hypothetical example, banks that would go to these endowments and say, Hey, you're a giant endowment, you have x number of shares in this beautiful uh, you know, promising unicorn that's going to change the world. We'd like to uh, give you liquidity for that now for your endowment. And, you know, we'll, we'll uh, have the shares as collateral and get some amount of the gain. Tender offers have started. I remember getting this when Masa did his Uber um, tender offer. And I can speak to this one because it was very public. You, you get like a little link uh, from um, second market. NASDAQ. NASDAQ private market yeah, yeah that's yeah, one NASDAQ that private market and mm -hmm. then uh, it just says hey what percentage do you want to sell you put in a request and then it tells you how much you were able to clear uh, maybe we talk a little bit about how often do those happen through like the NASDAQ secondary product or are they typically just done with you know uh, a lawyer emailing people it, it depends on how many folks are involved if you have two or three founders the company's just going to handle it you're not going to go through you know the secondary mm -hmm. platform but if you're going to go out and offer it to 100 employees, you're going to want to go through that secondary mm. platform because the administration of it, you're going to pay way too much to have somebody <laughs> manage all of those elections. And with the tender offer, there's just additional disclosure that has to happen. So when you log onto that platform, you probably click through it pretty quick, but there's all sorts of disclosure around uh, what the offering is. And it has to stay open for at least 20 business days. Mm. So when you go through that, there is a 
much more formality, disclosure, process around it. So they are more costly mm. to, to execute and more timely to execute mm. than a smaller transaction involving three but or more five people. buttoned up and tighter and less uh, errors, hopefully, or yep. any cantankerousness uh, that can occur. QSBS, Qualified Small Business, um, uh, it, it becomes an issue, right? You have to hold these shares from five years from the pricing of the share. Is that from when correct? you acquire the shares, yeah. yeah so, so it's a convertible note. <laughs> Until it converts, you actually don't have the shares, or you do, or debatable. From a from a QSBS standpoint, I believe that it starts when the shares are actually issued, but there mm. may be some tacking available. Mm. Um, so definitely check with tax folks on that. Yeah. But um, there are a few pieces of QSBS that's really critical. Like one, you ha it has to be the stock has to be acquired from the company directly. Mm. So if I'm an investor and I buy from an employee, that doesn't count like that. Those mm. shares are just never going to be QSBS eligible. I have to yeah. buy from the company. So sometimes that's one of the factors that influences how an investor will say, nope, I don't want to do the secondary, but I'll put more money into the primary and then company, you can go and repurchase the shares. Ah, Although <laughs> the caveat there, like if there are significant repurchases and there's a few different tax tests. So, you know, definitely mm. call up, call the tax folks to have them do the math on it. But if there is a significant um, repurchase, then that could cause the shares that were issued in the last 12 months and also the next 12 months to be ineligible to receive QSBS treatment. Mm. So on one hand, the investor who is buying primary says, oh, wait, I got to get the stock from the company in order for it to be QSBS. But I'm okay, go ahead and do a repurchase. If the company does that repurchase, it could make all the stock that the, that, that investor just received be QSBS ineligible. Mm. So lots of balancing factors as you're looking yeah. at this. Now, if you're looking at a company with more than 50 million in assets, QSBS doesn't apply. So right. in those really big examples that we were talking about, QSBS, Too late. The, the stock isn't eligible for it anyway. So yeah. you, you tend to see more company repurchases then. Yeah. Just because that, that piece QSBS of it is uh, for the land of uh, Series A and below. Seed investors, angel investors uh, mainly get to benefit from this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's a really big benefit if you, if you buy the stock and you hold it for more than five years which also relates to you generally are acqu acquiring it in those really early days um, because you got to hold it for five years before you sell it. But you can be eligible for a percentage-based exclusion from your federal income taxes. And there's a number of nuances around it, but and definitely talk to your tax advisors. But the exclusion yeah. could be up to $10 million. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's very it's significant. Time. Yeah, you got to want to really make sure your attorneys and your tax folks are being thoughtful about this and you're getting uh, statements from your companies and their CFOs that this is QSBS stock. All right, listen, yep, Becky, great job. Um, if you uh, need an attorney, Becky's amazing. Probably doesn't have many slots, <laughs> but you, you <laughs> take on a couple of new startups every year. Yeah. Always, always looking yeah. for, for new companies. So feel yeah. free to reach out. What's the ideal, is there like a zone? Cause I mean, listen, you've, you've been at this for a while um, and you get to pick your customers, I think to a certain extent. So is there a zone that's like best for you to work with? Like right after they raise a series A or a seed, or do you like when it's they're graduating from YC or you're just open-minded generally speaking? 
curious. Open, open-minded. You know, we, yeah. we really do, just like our companies, we, we concentrate on the funnel and you need more at the top. And, you know, mm. as the, the there's not going to be as many series B, C, D companies. Um, so no. we love to work with them as early as, as we can. Um, sometimes, you know, a, an idea may be too early, um, mm. in that, hey, like they, they, they can't afford our fees and we don't really see a path to funding for them. Um, but generally outside of that, if there's, if there's like, wow, this is a really cool idea, mm. let, let's talk because we yeah. have all sorts of deferral programs and ways that we work with startups. We have a lot of automation that we're doing to make it cheaper, faster for us to be able to work with those early stage startups. Deferral programs are great. Yeah, if you raise funding, you get the bill. If you don't, we can work on it. Love it. All right. Great job, Becky. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.